A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This episode contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Elders, past and present. It's Friday night, the 22nd of July, 1950, and at Perth CIB, Lionel Charles Thomas, a.k.a. Arthur Graham, a.k.a. Frederick Arthur Stevens, a.k.a. Thomas Edward Croft, is spinning the story he hopes will keep his neck out of the noose. He has to explain to Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack and Detective Cray of Sydney's CIB that his one-time fiancée, widow Phyllis Mary Page, is alive and well. Thomas tells them of their driving tour, which began at her home in Blacktown on the 2nd of February. They toured southern New South Wales, continued into Victoria and arrived in Adelaide in mid-March. Then he'd gone to Sydney, where he'd changed his name by deed poll and returned to Adelaide. Thomas says the last time he saw her was on the 8th of May, the day he'd gotten on the train for Perth. She's alive, he says. She'll turn up. But detectives Jack and Cray have, over the past seven weeks, amassed a chronological chain of witness testimony that makes a mockery of Thomas's timeline. They know there's no way that Phyllis is alive. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the fourth and final instalment of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Terrible Mr. Thomas. At 5.30 the next morning, July the 23rd, Detective Jack called on Dorothy Truslove, the 19-year-old girl that Lionel Charles Thomas, under the alias Arthur Graham, had been set to marry later that day. He told her her fiancé had been arrested, and why. Dorothy was questioned, told her story, and handed over the three-strand pearl necklace and diamond ring she'd been given by 
the man she'd known as Arthur Graham. Detective Jack had just taken into custody crucial evidence. Phyllis Page's necklace and her diamonds reset into a different ring. These valuables had first been given by Thomas to Luba Topfer, the 20-year-old Brisbane girl he'd wanted to marry, having started this wretched seduction at the same time he claimed he was still with Phyllis. While Thomas had told his innocent version of events, the detectives laid out the chronology they'd assembled in their seven-week investigation. At numerous points, it contradicted what he'd said. And the evidence to back up their timeline included his own sister's diary. Recording him arriving at her house in Ringwood alone on the 21st of February and giving accounts of various camping trips they'd taken when he was supposedly still touring around with Phyllis. Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack told Thomas he'd been found in possession of Phyllis's jewellery and other property. The officer told him, quote, You have converted Mrs. Page's money to your own use, selling the panel van and banking the money, as well as other money of hers at Canberra on March the 24th. The only conclusion? He'd been responsible for Phyllis Page's death. Faced with this incontrovertible proof, Thomas cracked, at least in Detective Jack's later telling of it. Thomas allegedly said, My God, she was a good woman. I shouldn't have done it. While Detective Cray took shorthand notes, Thomas allegedly continued his confession. Quote, When we were camped at Narrababa, I had a row with Mrs. Page. I don't know what came over me, but I picked up a rifle, shot her in the chest, I think, and she fell dead. I put her body in the panel van, took her to the Kia Bridge about 3am, tied some big stones around her, and threw her in the Tawamba River. He continued, I kept her pearls and left the wooden chest in which she had kept her clothes and her underclothes and slippers at my sister's house in East Ringwood. I hid the rifle in my father's garage because I couldn't use it after what had happened. Mrs. Page was really too old for me. We didn't get on very well together and she had started to nag. Thomas allegedly admitted he'd made gifts of Phyllis's jewellery to his two young girlfriends. But Thomas refused to sign Detective Cray's shorthand notes as being a true record of what he'd just said. Fair enough, unless he could read shorthand, why would he? Why would anyone? But Thomas also refused to make a written statement saying criminals weren't in a habit of writing or signing anything. He supposedly had said to the police, I don't think you'll have too much on me. I don't think you'll find the body now. Lionel Charles Thomas was charged with the murder of Phyllis Page on or about the 19th of February at Eden. Headlines in Sydney that weekend included The Sun, Arrest Ends 10,000 Miles Police Hunt, Truth, Amazing Story Behind Man's Arrest on Murder Charge, and Looking Ahead, The Daily Telegraph, Search for Body Follows Arrest for Murder. It had been an amazing manhunt, but the chase had taken its toll on Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack, who was admitted to hospital on the 23rd of July with double pneumonia. Another Sydney CIB man had to come to Perth to assist Detective Cray in escorting Thomas back to Sydney once his extradition had been approved. As the accused murderer's solicitor, Abraham Brindley told the press he wouldn't be commenting yet on the case, 
the first thing he needed to do was speak to his client. When Thomas arrived in Sydney on the 26th of July, it's certain he told Brindley what he'd tell everybody else. And this was, Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack had fabricated his confession and dictated it to his mate, Detective Cray, to take down in shorthand. This allegation should have been music to Abraham Brindley's ears. Another chance to take down his old foe, the frame-up artist. So it perhaps spoke volumes that Abraham Brindley refused to represent Lionel Charles Thomas. Instead, he'd be a witness for the prosecution and would produce paperwork in court. These included various check stubs, documents relating to Thomas's attempt to change his name by deed poll to Arthur Graham, and an authorization bearing the signature P.M. Page that Phyllis's daughter Jean believed had been forged. It seems likely that Arthur Brindley, who could have fought all of this and represented his client, was cutting his losses. He would have realized that he might, at best, be accused of criminal negligence in allowing this fraud to have been committed. At worst, he might be under the shadow of complicity in a far worse crime. Lionel Charles Thomas engaged other legal counsel. In 1935 in Sydney, he'd been represented by famous criminal defender Phil Roach. A decade later in Melbourne, it had been similarly well-known John Galbally and Robert Monaghan. This time around, he had Richard Marr, who'd been a barrister for 10 years, but as far as I've found, hadn't conducted a murder defence before. But Mr. Marr was being instructed by two experienced solicitors. The problem was how to pay these three legal eagles. Thomas did have £2,500 in bank accounts in New Guinea. This was a fighting fund that would pay for a strong defence. And a substantial portion of that money, about two-thirds, had been paid into these accounts before Thomas had perpetrated his alleged fraud on Phyllis Page. Even the Crown admitted that. But the police and government departments weren't letting Thomas get access to these funds. Why? They argued that these monies might be subject to a separate but as yet undisclosed criminal investigation. Could they have suspected the money was the proceeds of the Yandera Paycar robbery of 1941? It's possible. But regardless, a sum of money that size begged the question, how did a baker amass such a fortune? Given the cops and the Crown knew that Thomas had previously beaten murder and attempted murder charges with the help of high-priced lawyers, they weren't about to give him the means to buy his way out of this one. Mr. Marr and his solicitors spent five weeks fighting to have these funds released. They got nowhere. During those same five weeks, police were conducting digging and dragging operations around the places that Thomas and Phyllis had been on the south coast in the days before she disappeared. Ten detectives, including two scientific officers, were on the job. Given that Phyllis's wooden chest hadn't been found at his sister's place, detectives suspected that Thomas had put his victim's body in the box and thrown it into the Toowoomba River. They conducted tests with similar sized objects and found that once they hit the bottom, they'd be covered completely by sand within two days. That was, if they even settled. 
Those heavy rains in the first half of the year had seen the river, its tributaries and its creeks flood six times. Chances were, Phyllis's body, whether weighed down by stones or in a box, had been swept out to sea. Police searched and dug at various campsites too, but they didn't find anything. This created an opening for the defence to say that Thomas was telling the truth. Phyllis's body hadn't been found because she was still alive and out there somewhere. When the preliminary inquiry into Phyllis's death began at Sydney Central Court on the 5th of September 1950, the first arguments were about the release of Thomas's funds so his legal team could be paid and continue to represent him. Court was adjourned several times while they sought last-minute relief from government departments, but they still got nowhere. Thomas's barrister blasted authorities for bungling and inefficiency, but then he and the solicitors had to retire. They weren't taking this case on pro bono. Henceforth, Thomas would be represented by a court-appointed barrister, Alan Jenkins, who was instructed by Charles Griffiths, a solicitor and member of parliament. They were no slouches, but they also didn't have access to a huge amount of money, which, depending on your viewpoint, could have been used to mount the most brilliant defence possible, or as a slush fund to secure the best defence witnesses money could buy. The evidence against Thomas comprised much of what we heard in part three. What we haven't previously heard is what his old army buddy, Eric Ridgway, told the court. He testified that he'd seen Thomas again after the war in Sydney in 1946, but he'd known him, as he'd known him in the service, as Fred Stevens. Fred had introduced him to Phyllis and Eric had painted her house in Blacktown in early 1948. Around this time, the accused had said to him, I have a proposition for you, a sticky job. Thomas said he was going to get Phyllis to put the house into his name. He'd then sell it on the sly. What he wanted to do was go with Eric and Phyllis down south in Eric's truck. But for Phyllis, it'd be a one-way trip. As Ridgway told the court, quote, he said he would do away with the woman and bury her in a lime pit. Eric Ridgway said he thought his mate was joking. But Thomas had mentioned it again just days later, saying the property was worth £1,250 and he'd give Eric half. Eric said he wasn't interested. But he also told the court that he hadn't told Phyllis even though he was working at her house and she gave him lunch almost every day. But this proposed murder plot had played on his conscience, so Eric had actually reported it to the police, having a meeting with North Sydney detectives in Hyde Park on the 12th of March 1948. A detective monk had told Eric to keep an eye on his odd mate, but Eric hadn't been able to do that for long because Fred had gone back to Rabaul and Eric was busted for fraud, for which he'd serve 18 months from April 1949, including that stint in Grafton Jail, where he'd caught up with Thomas after he'd dropped off Luba. That North Sydney officer, Detective Monk, did testify and said that Eric had told him of the murder plot at that meeting in Hyde Park as described, but Detective Monk told the court that every time he'd followed up with Eric, the man had said, quote, Don't worry, I'll let you know when something is doing. 
there'd never been concrete evidence he could act on. Thomas's defence would elicit from Eric Ridgway, a convicted criminal, that he'd also been a patient in a nervous hospital for three months after the war. Would any jury be able to believe such a man? While Thomas was to reserve his defence, his barrister Mr Jenkins told the court his client would deny making the confession police had entered into evidence. The hearing lasted 15 days in which there were 43 witnesses, 150 exhibits and 150,000 words of transcribed testimony. Lionel Charles Thomas was committed to stand trial. In a quiet voice, he made his plea. I am not guilty. I reserve my defence. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. On the 27th of September, two days after the committal, New South Wales Premier Jim McGurr received a telegram from a Launceston shopkeeper. A middle-aged woman had cashed a postal order with the sender that very day. This note had been in the name of Mrs P. Page. Tasmanian detectives were alerted and took a photo of Phyllis to this witness. The shopkeeper said, yes, that's the woman. This witness had been living and working in Launceston for four years and had not been in trouble with the law. Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack flew to Launceston immediately. It was reported that when he walked into the shop, this veteran detective recognised the man. He might have had a clean record in Tasmania, but this crook had convictions in New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria. Under questioning, he admitted he'd been persuaded by a criminal and his female accomplice who'd supposedly come down from Sydney. These two had shown him a photo of Phyllis and told him to make his false report and then give a positive identification. The plan was they'd later send him a parcel of the dead woman's clothes. He was to produce these for the defence at the trial and say that Phyllis had left them behind at his store. Ergo, she was alive and Thomas was innocent. This supposed attempt to pervert the course of justice was reported under the headline Deep Scheme Comes Unstuck by the Sun's roundsman Noel Bailey. If true, it echoed Thomas's 1936 suborning of an alibi from the water to get off the attempted murder charge. Lionel Charles Thomas went to trial on the 20th of November 1950 in Sydney's criminal court before Mr Justice Kinsella. The Crown Prosecutor opened the case by saying the accused had murdered Phyllis, quote, without scruple, without pity and without a shadow of remorse afterwards. The woman had gone on a trip, quote, she believed to be her honeymoon, but which turned out to be her death trip. The same witnesses and exhibits were produced by the prosecution as in the inquiry. From Luba Topfer and Dorothy Truslove to Abraham Brindley and Florence Stevens. 
from Norman and Jean Page to Eric Ridgway and beekeeper John Gell and his diary-keeping wife Bridget. With the jury not in the court, Defence Counsel Mr Jenkins challenged the admissibility of Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack's evidence. He claimed Thomas had been improperly questioned and that his alleged verbal statement and the shorthand notes Cray had taken were complete fabrications. After hearing these arguments, Mr Justice Skinsella allowed almost all of this evidence to be presented. When it was, Mr Jenkins made his frame-up allegations, which were denied by Detective Sergeant Jack, Detective Cray and other police who claimed to have been present. They said the accused had admitted shooting Phyllis in a rage and then dumping her body in the river. When Thomas made an unsworn statement from the dock, he told the jury Phyllis and he had gone away together and that she'd refused to marry him after learning of his criminal record. He now said they'd parted in Melbourne and she'd said she was going to Adelaide. He'd gone down there later to meet her in the hope of reconciliation, seeing her on the 8th of May. But when she learned that her children knew about his criminal record, she said, quote, that finishes everything. Thomas told the court, quote, I tried to get her to change her mind, but she would not, and I then went to the station and got the train to Perth, and that was the last I saw of her. Thomas claimed that after he'd been arrested, Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack had tried to make him say he'd shot Phyllis in a hunting accident. When Thomas said he'd admit no such thing, Detective Sergeant Jack had fabricated the confession and dictated it for Detective Cray to take down in shorthand. Thomas also denied ever having tried to lure Eric Ridgway into any sort of murder plot. He told the jury, I have never harmed Mrs. Page. I am absolutely innocent of this charge. In his closing address, Mr. Jenkins said police had provided no motive for the murder. By their own admission, Thomas had plenty of money in the bank in Rabaul before the alleged crime. Mr. Jenkins said bringing Luba Topfer and Dorothy Truslove to give their lengthy testimony was a tawdry stunt that was supposed to make his client look like Bluebeard and suggest lust as a motive. Thomas's supposed confession, a fabrication from top to bottom. Mr. Jenkins asked the jury if they really believed a man as self-possessed as his client would break down and confess with his head in his hands, as detectives had claimed. Where was the body? That's what Mr. Jenkins asked. Phyllis Page was a mature woman of means, and she could have disappeared for her own reasons. Or she could have committed suicide, gone overseas, or even suffered amnesia. Murder had not been proved. Lionel Charles Thomas was innocent, and the jury had to acquit. On the twelfth day of the trial, the twelve men of the jury retired to deliberate. They were back in less than an hour. Lionel Charles Thomas was guilty of murder. Asked if he had anything to say before sentencing, he replied, there is little for me to say. I still say that I am absolutely innocent. In sentencing, Mr. Justice Kinsella echoed the Crown Prosecutor's opening address when he said, quote, The jury's finding involves that you took this unfortunate woman with whom you professed to be in love on a trip she thought was a trip to marriage and to a new life of happiness. In fact, you were taking her to her death. 
your crime was a callous one, and for it the law provides one sentence. Lionel Charles Thomas was to hang by the neck until he was dead. But everyone was fairly certain his death sentence would be commuted. The gallows hadn't been used in New South Wales since 1939. Lionel Charles Thomas appealed. Some of the grounds included that five men shouldn't have been allowed to testify. Presumably, these included Eric Ridgway, the convict and mental patient, and Abraham Brindley, his former solicitor. Thomas's counsel also argued again that he'd been framed by the police, but the court refused an appeal. In their decision, the justices said that even if the police had made up his confession, the chain of circumstantial evidence that they'd assembled was unbreakable. Thomas's appeal was rejected in April of 1951. Now that he had no further recourse before the law, newspapers all over Sydney were able to print summaries of the other crimes he'd been convicted of and those he was suspected of committing. These reports were printed all over Australia. They summarised the October 1934 Carnegie murder and the three trials that had failed to convict Thomas. They described the November 1934 Wins robbery in which George Oakman had been shot and that Thomas had beaten this attempted murder charge. But the most sensational claim was that this now-convicted murderer had also been the number one suspect in the Yandera railcar bombing of 1941 that had killed three men. As Noel Bailey reported in The Sun, police had been certain he was responsible, but had never been able to prove it. What they did know was that shortly after the outrage, those missing years after he was released from Pentridge in June of 1941, Thomas had enlisted in the militia, but he'd done so in his brother-in-law's name, Frederick Arthur Stevens. The newspaper report said that under this name, Thomas had, in a cruel irony, been a military policeman in Sydney for a while before he robbed a canteen and was discharged to civilian life. Had he committed the bombing and then enlisted in the army to hide out? Lionel Charles Thomas seemed to have form for that. He'd almost certainly first signed up under his real name in Melbourne 1939 in order to duck break and enter charges. Or had Lionel Charles Thomas already been in the army as Frederick Arthur Stevens when he committed the bombing and had hidden the cash until he'd been discharged? After the bombing, Sydney detectives had been looking at soldiers who'd been on leave or absent without leave on the 8th of December 1941. Both of the bombers had been described as looking very similar. Thomas, who stood 5'10", was dark-haired, dark-complexioned and of medium build, then aged 35, certainly fit the bill. If he'd been in the army in Sydney, he might have been unaccounted for that day, but given how he operated, being able to get a witness or witnesses to alibi him. If he was interviewed by police, it would have been as Frederick Arthur Stevens. And in 1941, Frederick Arthur Stevens didn't have a criminal record in New South Wales. While they would have liked to talk to Lionel, they wouldn't have even known about Fred. More than 80 years later, there was a way that I could get to the bottom of this. 
I had fake Fred's military files digitised by the National Archives of Australia. What they revealed was this. Lionel Charles Thomas had walked into Royal Park Recruitment Depot on the 14th of July, 1941. This was six days after he was released from Pentridge. At Royal Park, he claimed he was Frederick Arthur Stevens. Getting the military file is to see Lionel's unmistakable mug in a smirking portrait and in a profile photo. There's no question it was him. He even provided his actual birth date, said he was a baker and pastry cook and listed his sister as his wife. I guess it was easier to get away with a big lie if most of the incidental details were true. Question 12 on his militia enlistment form was, have you ever been convicted by a civil court? He answered no. Military records like these are very detailed in terms of where personnel went and when, whether they misbehaved, committed offences, were sick, injured or wounded. On the 22nd of September 1941, Thomas as Fred was posted to an ordnance unit in Caulfield. The next day, he was charged with drunkenness and spent four days confined to barracks. Getting a bit boozy didn't seem to do his career any harm and a couple of weeks later, he was promoted to corporal. Then, he enjoyed a week's embarkation leave. On the 20th of October, Thomas was marched out of the 3rd Military District, which was Victoria, and he was bound for the 7th Military District, which was the Northern Territory. Thomas arrived in Darwin on the 4th of November, and his record shows he was still there on the 17th of that month. His record's next entry reads, reverts to private. Why? Because he was charged with insubordination and bad language to a superior. But this offence was recorded in Darwin on the 21st of January 1942. Thomas was still there when the Japanese bombed four weeks later. So, was it possible for him to have left Darwin after the 17th of November 1941 and returned before the 21st of January 1942? Could he have been in Sydney on the 8th of December and bombed the railway pay car? I'd have to say it's almost impossible. Not only because he would have been noted as absent without leave, but simply because covering that distance during wartime wasn't feasible for a man who wasn't on official business, especially not with security checkpoints, petrol rationing, and so on. Unless I'm missing something, Lionel Charles Thomas wasn't in Sydney when the pay car was blown up. So why were police so sure it was him? Making this podcast, I applied to the New South Wales Police for any historic records they had relating to this case. Given the scope of the investigation into the Yandera bombing and the seven-week cross-country manhunt for Lionel Charles Thomas, I'd hoped there'd be something. Unfortunately, a five-hour search of homicide files turned up nothing at all. It's the way it goes sometimes. Records get lost or they get destroyed. But the National Archives of Australia military record for fake Fred charts the rest of his war. From April 1942, he'd work in field butchery and bakery units in the Northern Territory. He'd contract malaria and have numerous bouts. And this perhaps explained why he'd arrived back from New Guinea in 1949 so sick. In 1944, 
Fred was briefly a military provost in New South Wales. But in August that year, he was charged with making a false statement. This was him answering no to question 12 on his enlistment paper as Fred, denying he had any previous convictions. It was ironic that it was his brother-in-law's past that actually caught up with him. Yet over the next few months, it seemed the army was willing to let him off with a reprimand and forfeiture of about a month's pay. After all, Fred's conviction had been a decade before he enlisted. There's no indication that they knew that Fred wasn't Fred. He might have stayed in the army for the duration, but on the 29th of December 1944, Thomas was busted with stolen goods in his possession. It's not clear whether this was the canteen job referred to in later reports, but his file shows he was charged and convicted in Redfern Court on the 8th of January 1945. He was fined £10 in lieu of which he'd do 20 days with hard labour. Thomas paid the fine two days later, the 10th of January, but by this time he'd spent 13 days in custody awaiting trial. Once the fine was paid, the matter was resolved, but on the 12th of January he was discharged from the army. The official reason wasn't his recent criminal conviction, but because he'd lied on his enlistment form. Thing was though, there was no indication the army ever had any idea that Frederick Arthur Stevens was actually Lionel Charles Thomas. So from mid-January 1945, Lionel Charles Thomas was a civilian again. But he had a lot of documents now, including his discharge papers in the name of Frederick Arthur Stevens. A few months later, he'd be back in Redcliffs, about to be questioned by Melbourne CIB and spend the next six months facing three murder trials as Thomas Edward Croft. So all the more reason to become Fred again when he got to Sydney and began his awful seduction of Phyllis Page. Why did the 1951 newspapers report so definitively that Lionel Charles Thomas was responsible for the Yandera Paycar bombing? Based on his form, in the early to mid-1940s, the Sydney CIB might have suspected him. But by 1951, they had access to his military file as Frederick Arthur Stevens. Again, unless I'm missing something, they could see, as I have, just how very, very unlikely, bordering on impossible, it was for him to be guilty of the pay car job. My guess is that in April 1951, Sydney CIB just wanted to close the Yandera case. Thomas was now a convicted murderer facing the gallows. He wasn't about to sue the police or the papers for defamation. Reporters like Noel Bailey were usually only as good as the information they got from trusted sources. He and other journalists wouldn't have had access to Thomas's military file. I think it's safe to say Lionel Charles Thomas was not guilty of murdering George Randall, Alfred Philpot, and Fred Walker, the crew of Paycar FP-155. But was he guilty of the murder of Carnegie Assistant Station Master Tom Norwood? I think there's a strong chance he was responsible for that crime. Had the three juries been able to hear about the shooting he was alleged to have committed in Sydney five weeks later, he would have been convicted and sentenced to death. But of course, that's not the way justice works. And nor should it. 
In any event, Thomas had beaten that attempted murder charge too, even if he had done it with a false alibi. Did he murder Phyllis Page? This seems beyond reasonable doubt, simply based on the circumstantial evidence and how it contradicted his court testimony. Did Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack fabricate the confession based on the evidence that he and Detective Cray had already collected? It's possible such practices were common. Certainly the juries hadn't been willing to convict Abraham Brindley based on Detective Sergeant Jack's evidence in the coupon conspiracy trials of 1945-1946. And though Detective Jack's partner, Fred Cray, was only an up-and-comer in 1950, he'd go on to become one of the most notoriously corrupt New South Wales policemen of the 20th century, and he was known to extort money so he wouldn't frame people. Lionel Charles Thomas didn't go to the gallows for the murder of Phyllis Page. His death sentence was commuted to life in prison in August 1951. After the conviction, Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack took extended periods of leave to cope with health issues arising from the strain of the long manhunt. In addition to that double pneumonia, he'd suffered a heart attack. All up, Detective Sergeant Jack was off for about six months. His health problems meant his active fugitive chasing days were over. But he was set to return to lighter duties on the 12th of September 1951. The first thing he intended to do was to go to Long Bay Jail and ask Thomas one more time to do the right thing and reveal the whereabouts of Phyllis Page's body. But Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack didn't get to make that visit. That's because at 7 in the morning on the 11th of September, Lionel Charles Thomas was found hanging in his cell. He'd reportedly used his belt to commit suicide. Thomas left a note, written in pencil, saying that with God as his witness, he was innocent of the murder of Phyllis Page. He indicated he was killing himself because he'd been refused permission to work in the prison bakery, the only thing that would give his sorry life any meaning now. Thomas's suicide was front-page news, and it was another chance to run through his alleged crimes, which still included the pay-car bombing. Florence and Fred Stevens declined to retrieve Thomas's body for burial, so he was consigned to a pauper's fate. Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack, who believed that Thomas had not only killed Phyllis Page, but had murdered Pearl Jackson and another woman in New Guinea, went to Rookwood Crematorium to see the killer's corpse slide from view into the furnace. He remarked, The only decent thing he ever did for the community was hang himself. In 1968, a witness came forward to say that he knew something about the pay car ambush and needed to get it off his conscience after 27 years of staying silent. Sydney CIB detectives interviewed this man with a view to reopening the case. But nothing came of it. The murders of George Randall, Alfred Philpott and Fred Walker remain unsolved. In 1954, a skeleton was found at Broadford, north of Melbourne, and the bones were briefly believed to be those of Phyllis Page. They weren't. In 2015, human bones were discovered at Eden, right near one of the places that Fred and Phyllis were thought to have camped. 
This discovery saw the local newspaper, The Magnet, which had covered the case extensively in 1950, interview a man who'd lived in the area for the past 65 years. He told the paper, As soon as we heard about the bones, we all said, I bet that's Mrs. Page. But the remains were determined to be those of an indigenous man dating back to the time before white colonisation. His bones were repatriated in a private ceremony. Phyllis Mary Page has never been laid to rest. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Thanks very much for coming on this deep dive with me. I'll be back with new episodes soon. As always, thanks for listening and for supporting the show.